Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here is your host, Sarah Blackhurst. Hey, welcome back to Making Action Happen with Action 22. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. We're here to discuss all the issues that are most pressing for our Southern Colorado Action 22 communities. We have a whole lot to talk to you about today. In a few minutes, we're going to talk with Jeff Ayer, who is the um, the legislative liaison for the Colorado Rural Electric Association. And as you might imagine, there's a whole lot going on. If you've been watching the news, there's a whole lot going on in that arena right now, um, as far as energy and environmental lobbying and all these sorts of things. So we're going to be talking with him about that. Um, before we get into that, there's been a couple things going on this week, Brian. Um, what's been <laughs> what's been foremost on, on what you've been working on? Um, so this week, um, coming on, uh, basically been, again, trying to do that membership drive, emailing people, pulling my contacts from my previous job, mm-hmm. um, and just people I've, I've met and worked with over the years, you know, um, really trying to strive to hit the mark to make Action 22 the organization to go to in the region when it comes to the economic development, economic recovery, post-COVID. Um, so doing that. Um, also, as you slowly check our website, our Facebook, our now YouTube for the show, right. um, you'll see improvements on that start to come in. Um, it's, it's a process, so I try to do it a little bit at a time, but you'll see kind of a new... Um, almost a rebranding of some of the the stuff that we have out there in the electronic world and internet world. So we're excited. We're excited about that. And I'm totally out of my comfort zone in everything that we're doing right now. And you, you've been pushing me in that direction. It's been a good thing. It's terrifying. Um, But as I've been thinking about who we're really inviting to be action 22 members, it's based on the leadership that they've shown uh, because all of the Action 22 members are leaders. They're all community in their community. A lot of them are elected officials. A lot of them are organizations. We have some individuals um, that are members in their own right. We have county commission or county commissioners and counties and municipalities, all of those people, but they're all leaders. So when you're reaching out, it's really an invitation based on the leadership that we've seen from whoever the invitation's been extended to, right? Yeah, and I'm really approaching it as... Um, from the view of, you know, Action 22 needs you. I'm approaching it like you need Action 22. So, right. so that's that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to identify those people and those organizations that really need to be a part of Action 22. Yeah. And and it's, you know, it'll benefit them. It'll benefit us. Um, again, just working towards that goal to take care of the area post-COVID um, in these weird and crazy times that we're experiencing. Well, and sometimes when I look at everything that we're going to be talking about, and I'm going to go through in just a moment, the list of everything that the board is working on. Um, our, on Friday, we'll have the Action 22 board meeting. Uh, and just so you know, if for those of you who aren't familiar with Action 22, our board is made up of representatives, um, three representatives from each of our 22 counties, plus we have seven out of area. And those are representatives from um, organizations or businesses that do a whole lot of work in our Action 22 area, but we need help. What, For example, the Colorado Farm Bureau has been one of our, our best members. And I'm gonna talk about everything that we're going through, but sometimes 
it can be a little overwhelming. I was seeing um, something on Twitter the other day, and I'm not going to name names, but um, somebody was talking about how excited they are to run against somebody else who was just elected um, in, in two years. And they were talking about the district. And I thought, somebody hasn't gotten the memo that we just had a census and that district as it is right now will no longer exist after that. There is a redistricting process that's going on right now. There was a whole lot of work done two years ago on trying to avoid gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. And so this process is a huge one. And so this is one of the things that we've been watching really closely. I want to give you a quick update. Um, and you can see the full update on the emails or on the website. So if you get the Action 22 email blast, and you should have just gotten it a few minutes ago, if you get that, if you don't, then go to our website and subscribe. Um, and while you're at it, go to YouTube and subscribe to our new YouTube channel that we're putting all these shows on. Um, and we'll tell you a little bit more how to do that in a minute. But I wanted to give you an update. Um, on January 8th, the Congressional Judicial Review committee met and conducted a random selection of applicants yielding 300 Republicans and 300 Democrats and 400 unaffiliated applicants. The Legislative Redistricting Commission Judicial Plan Panel conducted the same process on January 12th. So to break it down a little bit further, um, and it's just because we've been in this and we've been watching this so closely, there may have been um, some steps missed on explaining this whole process. So what they're doing is they um, have a commission, a group of people on um, the congressional and the judiciary that will go through and they will remap those voting districts. So Colorado's District 3 voting district, um, that was um, formerly Scott Tipton's um, region, and now it's um, Lauren Boebert's region, but that's all going to get split up. So when they do the census, that is based on population. So Gerrymandering is the practice of creating the maps, the voting maps, um, based on trying to get as many from one party or the other into certain voting districts. And we've seen it, we've seen it done several times over. There's a lot of districts that don't make any sense. So that huge effort that was made, um, it was voted on, it was passed, uh, takes a lot of things out of it. And one of the things that I really liked about this process is for the first time, they have unaffiliated. So they have two, they're drawing from a poll for this commission of 450 unaffiliated mm -hmm. that basically made the unaffiliated a party. Mm -hmm. And that's huge because now we basically have a third party without mm -hmm. actually having a party. And well, I love that. Well, it makes sense when they change the primary election, um, you know, where if you're unaffiliated, you could vote in one of the primaries, whether Republican or Democrat. Because um, in the past, you had to be registered to the party to vote in that primary. So when Colorado switched to allow the unaffiliated, unaffiliated to vote in a primary election, that really set it to make the unaffiliated vote the third party. So there's a lot of unknowns with an unaffiliated party. There is. And um, <clears throat> the, there was some confusion on it, too, because you have people that register as independent. So they're not unaffiliated, they're independent. And a lot of the complaints that I heard from people in the, the beginning of this was, well, I'm independent, how come I couldn't vote? And it's like, well, there's an independent party, um, but when you register unaffiliated, that means you're not part of any party. Right. And, um, you know, just in the third congressional district, um, it was a competitive district. I know that people say it leans more to the Republican side, but it's actually 
a third, a third, a third. So right. it's one third Republican, one third unaffiliated, one third Democrat. And you could see the history of the third district where it does go from a Republican representative to a Democrat representative and switches back and forth. Um, and then some of the other districts, you know, if you're in a large metro area, it's going to be, you know, primarily Democrat. That's right. just the way it is in the United States. So it'll be interesting to see because when they, they put this commission together to redistrict, they want to make it as fair and as competitive as possible. But that being said, if you look at Denver, I don't understand, you know, there's no way to make that area competitive, I think. Um, without, you know, going outside of the area to include other counties, which we've seen in other states. Right. Um, not so much in Colorado. And also there's probably going to be an additional congressional district. So we'll have a CD8 in Colorado. And where they put that's going to be interesting too. The people that know what they're talking about say it's going to be around the Denver area. You'll see some of that split up. I don't think the the rural districts will change much. I think um, the third district, you, you might see a county cut off to an area and another county added, um, just like they did last time. Same thing with um, Representative Buck's district, Lamborn's district, which is Colorado Springs. I don't think you'll see much change, but there will be a change. Right. Um, the The population growth just isn't in those areas, and they do base it off the population. Now, in the Denver area where everybody's moving, um, you know, Douglas County, um, Denver, like that area, uh, that's where you're going to see an interesting change of the districts just to make up for everybody that's moving there and has moved there in the past 10 years. And it's been a huge amount. It's, mm -hmm. it's pretty shocking. So uh, later on in another show, what we'll do is we'll go through really how the voting went, uh, who voted where, and then sort of we'll give some ideas on what we think um, that those districts should look like. Of course, myself, and I'm putting this out to the universe, I would love for the Action 22 area to be its own congressional district. If I could have my way, that's how it would be. So um, I'm sure that that's not what's going to happen, but, you know, I can always, a girl can always hope. The second thing I wanted to review with you is we have a board meeting, an Action 22 board meeting um, coming up on Friday. So this is the first board meeting of the year. We do a whole lot um, it's, it's an important board meeting, and here's why. We take our policy positions on all of the things that we anticipate will be introduced. Um, we take, uh, and the board, that board does that as a whole, and that will lead what really we'll do during the session. We also invite all the Action 22 legislators to come and be a part of that, and it's sort of a pre-session uh, pre uh, meeting that we have with them, and then we also turn around and do it um, post-session so we can talk about a little bit what happened, but I wanted to give you a heads up on some of the things that the board will be deciding on uh, tomorrow, actually. So um, we're, we anticipate that there's gonna be a whole lot of um, legislation in these areas that Action 22 will take a position on. Pandemic relief, education, healthcare, um, transportation, the modernization of the tax code, and that's gonna take two or three um, different shows to go through that. It's a huge one. Um, climate, of course, climate change, everything that's going on there. Um, we're going to delve a little bit into consumer protections. Of course, energy is going to be a huge one. Um, and we are going to say a little bit, uh, have a resolution uh, about wolf reintroduction because that's been such a huge, a huge issue for um, not just 
And it's really not in the Action 22 area, but certainly our partners and friends in rural and rural communities. So um, around around the pandemic relief, there's a lot that's going to be talked about with regard to wages and workman's comp. Liability protections is going to be a huge, huge, huge thing this session that we want to talk about. And if you go back and listen to the show that we had with Gary Enforcement, you'll get a little bit better or deeper dive on that. Um, we're going to talk a, little, a lot about money surrounding education um, and then mental health services for students and teachers um, and keeping school districts whole, the, the funding whole for them in light of the enrollment declines. Um, the big, huge one that we're going to be talking about that Action 22 will take a position on is public option. There's a whole lot that goes into that. That'll probably be the biggest fight of this session is what should a public option look like, that sort of thing. Um, and then expanding and uh, drugs, drug transparency, drug affordability, that kind of thing. Of course, there's never going to be a year where we aren't talking about transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, the modernization of the tax code, that's going to be huge, huge, huge. Um, so there's a whole bunch that goes into that. Um, and we'll put all this out on our, on the emails and the website so everybody has a little bit better idea um, on all the climate change stuff. And that goes directly into energy. Mm-hmm. So with that, I want to welcome our guest. Um, Jeff Barrett has been with um, the CREA or the Colorado Rural Electric Association since 2007. Uh, he has a ton of experience as a legislative liaison a legislative liaison and public information officer. He was formerly with the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies. Um, But this whole issue with what's going on in the Rural Electric Association. So Jeff, we have listeners actually from um, all over the country and internationally as well. So will you give us just a quick brief on what exactly a rural, the Rural Electric Association is, what they do, talk about co-ops, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, Thank you very much. And I appreciate your having me here and I appreciate your discussion about redistricting. Um, So in a nutshell, the rural electric cooperatives were formed back in uh, the Roosevelt area during the New New Deal uh, as part of an effort to get rural America electrified. Um, And we're kind of a consider ourselves a creature of the New Deal. Um, Electric cooperatives are member owned. uh, So they have their own elected board of directors. Uh, they're nonprofit, unlike the investor-owned utilities. Um, and in, at least in Colorado, we are not rate regulated by the PUC. Our, our wow. service territories are, are regulated. Um, there is a complaint process to the PUC if uh, a member owner feels like uh, the rates are unfair. But uh, generally speaking, um, locally owned, local, locally controlled, um, I like to say that you know our members, our consumers uh, see their directors at the football game on Friday night, back when we had football games on Friday nights. Um, so they're right there in the community. Uh, and we are keeping the lights on for you 24 seven. Right. Uh, a big How, difference. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, a big difference between us and a, and a typical you know, investor owned utility is quite frankly, uh, our service territory, we have fewer consumers per mile of line. Um, right. You know, we average about seven consumers per mile of line versus uh, 35 for an XL, which is the biggest investor owned in Colorado. So um, geographically, though, talk about geographically how much of Colorado is covered. Uh, well, we cover about 73% of the geography of the state, but only about 20% of the consumers in the state. 
So we got a lot of land and not a lot of people. So talked a little bit about some of the struggles of the member-owned utility versus the investor-owned. Well, because of our fewer consumers per mile of line, that means less revenue per mile of line, which means um, our rates uh, tend to be a little bit higher. Um, It's expensive. It costs just as much to string a mile of line for two consumers as it does for 10 consumers. Right. Um, So uh, we are very cost conscious. Things that affect our costs, um, we're very sensitive to. But I will have to say that uh, in surveys that are done nationally, consumers are much happier with an electric co-op model than they are with uh, an investor-owned model. And I think that's mainly because they feel connected to to the entity. So that's absolutely true. I'm a member of the San Isabel Electric Association have been forever. My parents, that's, and that's what our service provider, our electric Mm -hmm. provider is. And and really is, I know everybody on the board. Um, We know we work with everybody. In fact, uh, Reg Rudolph, who is the CEO for San Isabel Electric is on the Action 22 board of directors, as is a whole bunch of other, I've got, we've got members or energy people. Um, and so there's a whole lot that's going on right now. So tell us a little bit, kind of update us. If, if you've been living under a rock and not paying attention to the energy arena, give us a little update on what's happening right now. Well, you know, for several years, we've been dealing with um, legislation and mandates to, um, well, encourage or require um, electric providers to switch from fossil fuels to cleaner energy, which is great for the environment. Um, And the prices for renewable resources have really come down, so they're much more competitive. Um, But the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, and we have to keep the lights on 24-7. And we've gone to what's called a lot more distributed generation, where the old model was you have huge power plants um, that are mainly coal burning and you locate those where the coal is because it's cheaper to get the coal to the to the uh, generators when it's close and then you string transmission lines. Um, our system was built for kind of one-way communication. You generate the electricity at the power plant, you distribute it to the consumers. We're moving to a model where with Um, renewable resources that are much closer to the consumers, um, but our system wasn't necessarily built for those smaller renewable resources that are intermittent. So we're spending a lot of time and effort and and resources, money, uh, to upgrade our system to allow for more renewables. It's not something you can switch on overnight, um, but it's something that over time we will get there. Right. So as far as investment goes for expanding that to updating your, all of your equipment and how that's delivered, um, how, are you, how are you managing that? Um, you know, one of our biggest struggles is with transmission. Transmission is expensive to build um, and it's something that you know, we get a lot of uh, NIMBY, not in my backyard. Uh, people want those resources um, but they don't want to look at transmission lines necessarily. Um, so it's it's an expensive proposition. Um, what we're really interested in, and, and there will be legislation this session dealing with what's called a regional transmission, transmission organization, 
And what that does is it takes a, a group of utilities and transmission owners and puts a, a kind of a, a single governance body over it. So what it, in theory and in practice in areas where they have them, um, you get a lot more efficient use of the existing transmission system without building. We're still going to have to build more, don't get me wrong. But without building more, you can use what everybody has more efficiently um, to bring down costs. Do you have a, a, an example of that? Um, there, you know, Southwest Power Pool, which uh, covers, I think, 22 states. Uh, they have, uh, they're probably one of the older ones around here. Um, and, you know, they have reduced the cost for their consumers about 8% just by uh, using their uh, transmission system more efficiently. Now, some consumers are going to pay more, some are going to pay less, you know, but it averages out those costs. Um, when you're trying to what we call wheel uh, electrons across the wires, you pay a fee when you're using somebody else's transmission lines. And with a regional transmission organization, uh, those fees are kind of flattened out a little bit, and don't get pancaked on. So it, it becomes a much more efficient way to use the existing system. Um, and then you, in building out, you kind of bid, bid out that process so that you uh, get a more efficient build, hopefully, as well. Right, right. So I have kind of a technical question. This is for my own education. Um, we've heard a lot about, or we're hearing a lot about efforts to move away from oil, uh, oil and gas and go straight electric. So my question to you on that is, can the grid support that huge boost on electric? You know, that's a, that's a very good question. And it's really dependent on where you are. Um, so certain areas of the state, the infrastructure just isn't there to make that quick switch. Um, I'm guessing those are rural areas. And mainly our members in rural areas. <laughs> you are correct. And, and that's the huge amount of what you cover are rural areas, right? Yes. Um, you know, we do have co-ops that are up in the Denver metro area. They were rural at one point in time, but as the metro area has grown, they've grown into our service territories. Um, but, you know, I think oil and gas is going to have to be around as a bridge fuel for uh, many more years to come. Uh, it, right. It, it can replace coal and it can be more cost effective. But we can't just go from, you know, a coal-based system to a renewable system overnight. Um, we're going to have to transition. And Which oil and gas is, is a key, right. key component to that. Um, if you had to make this transition tomorrow, let's say you had, like they said, you don't have a choice. You've got to make this transition tomorrow. How would you answer that? We can't. Can't do it. Yeah, it, it, it can't be done overnight. Um, yeah, <laughs> it do, does it feel to you is it is it a little bit um the sky is falling or is it worrisome to you or it's okay and we don't need to freak out so much um about this big push to move away from oil and gas and coal simultaneously um it is concerning i mean we can manage it if it's done thoughtfully and and you look at the time horizon which i i think we're doing right now i know there are people out there who want it done overnight uh, and I and I can appreciate you know that they're uh, very concerned about climate change and the environment and those are very real concerns um, but 
you have to plan things out and you have to transition smoothly. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, and I'm not an engineer, I, but engineers can explain to you that, you know, you need to keep a certain amount of voltage on a line. Otherwise, um, you start frying people's equipment in their homes right. and they're not going to be real happy about that. So right. we need to be very careful about how we do this. From that perspective, what is um, CREA doing to try to drive a more thoughtful, careful approach? Um, we participate um, in you know, a lot of stakeholder meetings with groups, um, particularly when there's legislation. We work a lot in, you know, as you know, in Colorado, we have um, term limits. So every time there's an election, we spend a lot of time educating new uh, elected officials about what a co-op is and uh, how electricity is generated, how it's transmitted, and how it's delivered to the end consumers. And it's, it's a full-time job just keeping those people aware and educating them about what some of our challenges are. So we're going to go um, to the break in just a moment. Um, I want to give you an opportunity right now to give a shout out to some of your members um, that are part of CREA. And then when we come back from the break, um, we're going to talk a little, we want to talk a little bit about the needs as far as transmission goes. We hear that all the time and what's going to have to happen um, on the transmission. And so we'll get, we'll come back to that, but just take a moment, if you will, to give a shout out to some of your members. Hey, I, I really appreciate it. We've got a lot of members that overlap with you. You, you mentioned San Isabel, but Southeast Power. Um, we've got, um, I'm looking at the map here, KC Electric, uh, Mountain View touches your territory. Um, so we've got uh, a lot of mutual members and all of those members have consumers that uh, hopefully running businesses and joining Action 22. Well, thank you. Um, so like I said, when we um, come back, we will talk a little bit more about transmission. If you have any questions about, or that you have for Jeff, um, or if you have any questions about the show, you can email us at show at action22.org. We will get those questions answered for you. A lot of our listeners listen on demand, as you might imagine, but the show is live. If you, and when we go to the break, you'll hear the phone number. If you want to call in and you have questions, you can get, um, give Jeff some, throw some questions at Jeff as far as the energy and what that's looking like moving forward. But again, if you have any questions for Jeff, um, it's show at action22.org. We will return in just a few minutes um, and talk about the ever prominent <laughs> issue of transmission. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen. You are listening to the show on the Voice American Network. Um, and we have with us Jeff Eyre from the Colorado Rural Electric Association. Hi, Jeff, thanks so much. So before we went to the break, we were talking a lot about um, just the ins and outs and technical stuff with regard to, um, with regard to electric, the Rural Electric Associations and so forth. Um, I have I have lots of questions on um, trans on transmission issues. I, I don't understand this at all. But Brian, you as working for Congressman Tipton, you dove into this quite a bit. You have a way better understanding of this. Yeah. Um, so as far as I understand it, and we'll let Jeff jump in here in a minute. But um, our transmission lines are old. Um, they they have been around for decades and whenever you have um, everything from new power plants new types of power that comes on the transmission lines um, that has to be addressed right so look at it as like a highway basically like you have an old highway you get more traffic on it you need to expand it Um, unfortunately for a lot of the transmission lines that hasn't expanded recently as some of them have but you still have the areas like rural areas where it's still you know the same lines have been there forever so Am I wrong in saying that, Jeff? No, I, I think you're you're pretty accurate in that. I, I think a prime example um, is San Luis Valley. Um, and what we like to do, what any electric provider likes to do, is to have redundancy built into your system. You want to have more than one way to get electricity to your consumers. Uh, San Luis Valley, is, I, I liken it to a landlocked um, country or something. There's one transmission line going over Poncha Pass that serves the valley. There is no other secondary line, secondary feed coming in. Um, and San Luis Valley has some of the best solar resources in the country. Um, but we don't have a capacity on that line to bring those solar resources to where the, the, the load is, to where the need is. So we've got this huge resource sitting down in San Luis Valley. Um, Great economic development opportunity, by the way. Uh, but 
we don't have a way to, because of our aging infrastructure, we don't have a way to get that energy out of San Luis Valley and bring it up to where the consumers are. So that the aging uh, infrastructure is certainly an issue. And and with the infrastructure and and new lines and a, a new improved grid, um, it's not as simple as just building a new line. Uh, from the cost of it is obviously going to be expensive, but on top of that, you have jurisdictional issues. Whereas you go through a county, you go through a city, you go through the state, you go to federal land, you go through state land, and I know it must be just a nightmare having to run a new line across the state of Colorado. I'm sure just the permits alone. Well, you know, the, for us, for any any provider, the first step is going to the Public Utilities Commission to get permission. You have to demonstrate that there's a need for the line, um, which is, you know, a lot of cases fairly straightforward, um, but you're exactly right. Once the PUC says, yes, we agree that you need to get a line to get uh, energy from point A to point B, um, you have individual counties with land use uh, that you need to get permission from. If you're going across federal lands, that's even more bureaucratic red tape to deal with. Um, and then there's the cost of building. Once you finally get all those permits and everything in place, it can take, um, you know, a decade uh, by the time you start the process, identifying where you think you need a need and going through the whole process before you finally get a line built. It can take, you know, six to 10 years. And I, I know in, on a federal level, um, the delegation of Colorado and, and a lot of the Western, um, Midwestern delegation, you know, they really kind of looked at a streamlining process for the permitting on federal lands. I know um, there was a small hydroelectric bill that was signed into law um, that basically streamlined that process. Whereas, you know, instead of having 12 permits to put up a hydroelectric plant, now you have one that, you know, there's no need to apply for the same permit. 10 times at the same area. Um, as far as uh, a state state level and legislation uh, and even federal, have you seen any push to streamline that process, to speed it up, to make it easier, more efficient? Um, there's been a lot of efforts and, and I tell you, some counties are, are better to work with than others. They will do um, hold joint hearings um, to try to, to streamline and make it easier. Um, it hasn't happened that much in recent times, but there would be times where you would have one county say, we want you to use this route and the county adjoining it would say, no, we prefer you use this route. And if they, where they want you to start your lines are eight or nine miles apart, it doesn't work real well. Um, but it's gotten a lot better. Um, there's a recognition that we need to work collaboratively. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty pleased to say that, you know, it's still, it's still complex but it has gotten a little bit easier. Um, one of the main issues that still exists is, you know, the uh, landowners and people in the communities, as I said earlier, it's not in my backyard. We, we want you to build this transmission line, but I don't want to look at it. So <laughs> put it in somebody else's view shed, not mine. That's, that's the curse of, uh, <clears throat> especially in Colorado, rural Colorado. It's uh I move here, I have this view, I need power, but I don't want to see the line. So put it in my neighbor's yard so I don't have to look at it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see how that can get frustrating. Um, and, and like you said, it, it, you know, everybody does seem to, to work collaboratively on this. They have to, but um, have you seen an increase in that? Like our counties, jurisdictions, even people like in the time we're living in, our big messages 
we're in this together. We have to find a solution together and work collaboratively. And you have seen it. Have you seen the attitudes get better, for lack of a better term? Um, for the most part, I think we have. I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, recognition, and, and I guess, you know, I, I, one of the areas where I think we've made a significant improvement, even though it's still a problem, is uh, in wildfires um, mm -hmm. and clearing um, our right-of-ways. Every distribution line, every transmission line has a right-of-way, um, and the owner of that right-of-way is responsible for maintaining that right-of-way, keeping vegetation clear, for example. Um, we used to have landowners that would come out and say, no, no, I, you're not cutting down that tree. Um, kind of a, the blessing and the curse with wildfires we have now is that people are going, okay, I recognize that, you know, I like that tree, but if it's going to uh, help you mitigate the fire risk, by all means, you know, come on in and, and uh, take care of it. Um, and even the federal lands, uh, the U.S. Forest Service years ago would say, if you're cutting down trees, we want you to just lay them down in the right of way. You can cut them down, but lay them down because we want the natural decay to take place. Mm -hmm. um, they're realizing now that when that happens, that's just that's just a, a tinderbox. Um, so now they're beginning much better about, hey, you can you can go beyond your right of way, widen it out a little bit more, and go ahead and take all that fuel out from underneath your lines. So it's it's gotten a lot better. And there's, uh, I think you said that you're working on something for that purpose for fire mitigation, correct? We're we are we're we're working on legislation for this coming session um, that will, um, we think, uh, improve vegetation management uh, for our electric co-ops. Um, addressing a lot of times, you know, we have the right to clear uh, hazards that are within the right of way, but there's been several instances where. There's a, a what we call a hazard tree that might be 15 or 20 feet outside the right-of-way. It's a dead tree. It's tall enough. Good, strong wind is going to blow it into the line. But under current law, we don't have the ability. You know, we, we can reach out to the homeowner, aunt, landowner, whatever, and ask permission to cut it down. Um, but a lot of times we have absentee landowners. You can't find them. You can't get them permission. So we're looking at ways where we can address those trees that are outside the right-of-way um, and kind of mitigate that risk that we have. Yeah, that would be a challenge if you have, say, somebody that lives in uh, Washington, California, somewhere like that, and they have their vacation home or their vacation cabin that they're in two days out of the year. Like, how would you get a, in contact with that person to clear the tree, like get the permission for it? That, that would, in my, my mind, that would be a challenging thing to do. So, yeah, and, and a lot of our mountain communities, there are a lot of second homes. Yeah, um, so it's, you know, it, it becomes problematic. Yeah, yeah, it has. And, um, you know, the, the past five to 10 years, we've seen that increase in the, the fires, forest fires here in Colorado. And I really noticed how from 10 years ago till recently, how the attitude had changed from people that, you know, you, we need to mitigate these forests for fire and don't touch it to you know what, you're right. There needs to be some work done. I, I think they saw the, the damage and destruction firsthand of what happens when you let that go unchecked. What, is that, what does that cost? I remember when um, they had the fire down the San Luis Valley a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. um, San Isabel Electric was talking about just their lines um, in that area 
And they said that the fire caused a million dollars worth of damage and they didn't have um, as many lines as, as the other co-op mm -hmm. in the San Luis Valley. Um, but it cost a million. How, how do, are those costs defrayed? What does that actually cost when you, when you have something like that happen? Uh, we're dealing with that right now um, with the uh, Cameron Peak and the, and the Grizzly fires from this year. Um, we're estimating uh, just the cost to the cooperative infrastructure, our lines and poles and things, is close to $7 million. Wow. Uh, and we're working through FEMA um, because there is a, a process where uh, we had the disaster declaration was, was signed on January 15th which allows us to go through the FEMA process. Um, my understanding is uh, FEMA will reimburse a percentage of those losses, but it could take anywhere from two to five years mm -hmm. for that reimbursement to come in. So, so in the meantime, that's costing consumers. In the meantime, that's costing consumers. Um, and it could take, it could quite honestly, depending on circumstances, it could take years for us to build that infrastructure back out to the quality that it was before. I mean, we can run emergency lines out to folks, but to get the, uh, the, the safe quality infrastructure that we had before, it could take us a couple of years to recover from this. And not, and just, this isn't just power either. This is everything from broadband to uh, any utility, basically. Um, it, it costs a lot of money and it does a lot of damage. And going back to the Valley, you know, when you have one line in and out, that goes down then what do you do? Like, do you have people without power for a while? And also with the grid, if a section of the grid's hit, you know, we always read that something happens across the country and knocks out power two states over just because right, the, because the infrastructure. And, and I, I don't think people realize that the, just the cost and damage that a fire can do when it comes to this. And the fires aren't good, wildfires aren't going away anytime no. soon. No, and, and you know, it's not my area of expertise at all, but you hear all the time, and it's very true, um, the watersheds are in high risk. Mm -hmm. um, not damage from the fires, but um, once all of the you know, trees and vegetation around those uh, watersheds are gone, you've got runoff, you've got all kinds of issues. So that's one of the first things that needs to be done post-fire in terms of recovery is how to address you know, protecting the water. And yes. that's a huge thing because if you don't, if you don't live in Colorado, if you're not from Colorado, you probably don't understand this. Water in Colorado is a huge, huge, huge issue. Um, we were really excited. And you've heard it said on the show before that we have Cleve Simpson um, from the San Luis Valley, who's a water guy, and he is now one of their state senators, but we need so much more expertise on the waterfront. Um, Phil Weiser, who's our AG, has been working on this a lot. But that whole fire, that infrastructure, all of those play in together. But for Colorado, that watershed is huge, huge, huge issue because we have no water coming into Colorado. The only two states in the union that don't have water flowing into it are Colorado and Hawaii. Everybody else has water flowing in. And it's a constant worry and threat for every aspect of, of the state on every single level. Um, on those. So let's, um, Jeff, let's talk about, is there any other legislation that you guys are, are working on for the coming session for Colorado? Oh, the, you know, there's, there's a ton of legislation that we're aware of and, and working with various legislators on. Um, I think one that uh, is interesting is uh, building performance standards. Uh, there's 
legislation out there in discussion stages. So I don't have language yet, but right. from what I understand, um, the uh, governor's energy office and others are working on a bill where buildings over a certain size, and right now they're talking about 50,000 square feet, um, will all of their utility usage information will be consolidated into a third party vendor. And then they're gonna do what they're called benchmarking. So they're gonna say, um, given this type of building, um, here's what the average energy usage is. If you're a below average building, you're gonna be given a period of time, three to five years, to improve the efficiency of your building to bring it up to um, above that you know, 50% mark. And then of course, those buildings that are now 50% are gonna be below. So it's an ongoing improvement in terms of energy efficiency for these larger buildings. And I would assume the goal is, is that once you start getting these 50,000 square foot buildings in, you move it down to 30,000 square feet buildings and, and keep trying to improve the efficiency, which is one way to reduce um, carbon emissions, which is the, the, the ultimate goal. So I can think of about 15 implications off the top of my head for that, but what are the, the main implications of that, that that you guys are concerned about? Well, one thing is the owner of the building may not necessarily be our consumer. A lot of times they're leasing this space out to somebody. Um, we're very sensitive to be releasing your information to a third party without your permission. Um, okay. So we're, we're very sensitive to being responsive to our members who may not necessarily want their information handed over to somebody without their permission. Um, that's one concern. I think that's a big concern. And then we don't really know what data they want. Um, that's still in negotiations. And so um, I think we wanna be very helpful in this effort, but at the same time, um, particularly a, a smaller co-op where people wear a lot of hats, um, how much manpower is this going to take? Uh, you know, right. Are we going to have to hire a new employee to provide all this data? Um, that cost goes directly to our consumers. So we're, we're in, the, in the discussion stages there. Like I said, it's all conceptual right now, but I know that's a bill that's coming through. Um, there's legislation on what we call beneficial electrification where um, particularly in the transportation sector, trying to build, once again, build out that infrastructure so that electric vehicles can be used more uh, around the state. Um, they're getting better range, but still there's range anxiety. People wanna know that they can charge that thing when they, when they need to. Um, there's, there's not charging stations in every corner like there is gas stations. Um, so the more we can do to help build that infrastructure out to reduce the use of internal combustion engines, um, replace them with electric vehicles. Um, and, you know, when it makes sense, does it make sense? Um, for example, uh, ground source and air source heat pumps uh, for heating homes. Um, 20 years ago, they were not cost effective. They didn't work real well at altitude. They didn't work real well in very cold weather. Um, they're improving a lot. Um, so can we move uh, folks off of propane to a ground source heat pump or a air source heat pump um, to reduce carbon emissions? Um, I'm not picturing that legislation specifically right now, but I am picturing legislation on beneficial electrification to try to encourage uh, more electrification of both buildings and transportation. 
So on the beneficial electrification side of it, do you see anything that could happen in the next five years that would make that economically feasible for, especially in our rural communities? Um, it, it potentially. Um, technology is getting better all the time. Um, there was legislation last year, um, if you're familiar with the BEST program, which is um, uh, a, a, fed or a state grant program for uh, improving schools. Um, right. And one of the things that, that we looked at and, and there was legislation last year that said, if you're applying for a BEST grant uh, to build or improve, um, upgrade a school, you need to contract your utility provider to see if there are some opportunities for energy efficiency, distributed generation, um, things that you can do to, um, in the long term, save you money and uh, get lower emissions. Um, you need to look kind of at the life cycle of things. And sometimes it makes sense to, to go for a beneficial electrifications and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, it depends on the life cycle of the project you're talking about. But to have that conversation with your utility, I think, is really important. And um, I have a question that you may know the answer to. Um, during the COVID pandemic, you know, we're seeing people that lose their jobs, unable to make the bills. Um, are there some programs out there that you know about that can help people in a system during these times if they may not be doing too well? Well, you know, Energy Outreach Colorado is a, is a phenomenal resource to help pay utility bills. Um, they've been around for decades. Um, all of our co-ops have programs to assist people in, in their utility bills or refer, refer them to local resources. Um, it is an issue with people getting unemployed. Um, and I think, you know, it's even as things come back, um, and you would know better than I, um, you know, a lot of these small businesses that are struggling are not going to come back. And the people that are employed in those businesses are going to be struggling for a while. Yeah. And even the ones that do come back, they're going to be playing catch up for a while a afterwards. So. A long time. And that, you know, brings up another topic as, as we start talking about transitioning from fossil fuels to uh, renewable energy, um, closing down coal plants, closing down coal mines, uh, the just transition. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, there was legislation passed and they created this, what they're calling the Office of Just Transition, which yes. is designed to help those communities that are impacted. Um, but there's no funding for that office. So, so yeah. um, you know, it, it's, there are job opportunities in renewable resources, but they're not necessarily where the people are losing their jobs. Yeah. So we, we need to be very cognizant of um, what some of these policies are doing to folks who live in rural areas. Um, you can't just replace some of these jobs overnight. Yeah. Or at all. Yeah. And, and even, you know, some of the, the programs that are out there that help people transition into the renewable energy sector or something similar. Um, like you said, they're not where they live right now. And it's tough to move across the state, you know, go from the West Slope to the front range. It's, it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. And we know that there's going to be some of those jobs here, but mm -hmm. the whole Western, all of our friends over on the Western Slope are really, really worried about this. So um, as we are, we, we're wrapping up two questions for you. One is, is there any bright spots that you see? Is there anything that you're excited about or anything that you're really looking forward to? Like we're getting this figured out. 
Oh, you know, there are a lot of things that, that I think are, we're viewing positively. Um, the cost of renewables are coming down. We're looking at, uh, you know, new technologies, storages costs are coming down. Um, so, you know, we start looking at pairing some renewable resources with some battery storage and not necessarily battery storage. Uh, I saw some folks talking about pumped hydro as a, as a resource for storage. You know, people think all the time that batteries, but what, what do you define as a battery? We've got two pump storage projects in Colorado. And what that is, is you've got two reservoirs, one at a higher elevation, one at a lower elevation. Um, when energy is cheap, you pump the water from the lower reservoir up to the higher reservoir. And when energy, there's demand, you run it through a turbine back down to the lower reservoir, um, it's, it's ingenious. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's cost effective in certain circumstances. Sure. Um, so we're, we're looking at projects like that. Microgrids are exciting, um, and that's where you can take a specific geographic area. And if there is, as we were talking about earlier, a large power outage, uh, perhaps you can island a certain area, and they've got some distributed resources within that microgrid that can keep that specific area still energized while the rest of the surrounding area is is dark. Um, so there's there's some positive things there. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about is several of our co-ops are involved in broadband. We mentioned communications. Mm -hmm. um, the COVID has really brought to light, and we knew it was an issue, you knew right. it was an issue yeah, for a long yeah. time, that rural areas don't have the same access to broadband as, as metro areas. Um, and uh, that's something that I'm very proud to say that uh, my members are stepping up and providing that service to to your members. Uh, right. So, right. Uh, so I'm going to leave it with the final. Can I ask it? Go for it. Okay. I'm going to um, ask you probably the toughest question I'll ask you today. And that is when are we going to be ready to start talking about nuclear power plants? Yeah. 30 seconds to answer. <laughs> when, uh, when are we going to actually start talking about this for real? You know, there's a lot of research and interest in um, small modular nuclear uh, facilities, which I think, I, I think, this personal opinion, um, are going to happen at some point. Um, and these would be, you know, the typical huge power plants that are, you know, 500 megawatts. Um, I don't think you're going to see one built in, in the United States anytime in the near future. Um, but I really am, am very uh, impressed by the, the what they're calling the, the modular nuclear reactors that are much smaller. And we know they can be built. We've got nuclear-powered submarines. We've got nuclear-powered yeah. aircraft carriers. Absolutely. Um, you know, so in another time, them. we're going to have a real conversation about it, Jeff, um, and we'll, we'll do that later. But um, that's our show for today. We thank you so much for being with us. Um, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for letting us throw some tough questions at you. Uh, please give our, our uh, affection and, and admiration out to Kent Singer, who's your boss. And we appreciate you being on the show today. Um, we will be back next week with Senator Michael Bennett. Yep. Finally, finally. So tune in for that. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your host, Sarah Blackhurst, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.